0: The following is a Westminster Seminary, California Convocation Lecture. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Thanks, Ryan. I'm afraid uh, the accent will be what it is, but you'll have to forgive the James Earl Jones impersonation here with my cold today. Uh, my children sent me off with a final parting gift this last week. It's a real privilege to be with you today. Uh, I've been a big fan of Westminster, California for a long time, although I went to Gordon-Conwell back in the day, and I've been asked to present, with, uh, present you with some of my research to do with 1 Corinthians today. So I hope this is going to be useful. I hope it's going to be interesting. I hope it might even be edifying, because that word that we use so often in English actually does come from passages like this about building up the church. So if you've got your Bible, or even better, if you've got your Greek New Testament, would you have that out, please, this morning? And would you open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? (coughs) In 1 Corinthians... (coughs) 3:10, 3:10, Paul calls himself a Sophos architecton, a wise master builder. He has laid a themelios, a foundation, as he states in 3:10 to 12. And a few verses later, in 3:16 to 17, Paul insists that the church is the Naosteu, God's temple. We realize, of course, that Paul is using metaphors here. And there's an obvious logic that connects these images, isn't there, in verses 10 to 17. We understand immediately that an architect or master builder plays a key and authoritative role in the building of a temple. We know that the foundation of a temple is the most critical structural component. We sense that the superstructure must sit, rest upon, and suit the foundation. And furthermore, we may even be alert to the fact that here we've got some deep biblical, theological, and thematic resonances of covenant community as temple. So far, so good. But what we may not grasp straight away is that the architect, the foundation, and the temple are only three elements, three key elements, certainly, but only three that signal a robust pattern or template within the larger passage of 1 Corinthians 3 5 to 4 5. It's a template, what I'm calling here this morning, Paul's paradigm <clears throat> for properly thinking about gospel ministry and gospel ministers in Christ's church. So what I want to argue this morning is, uh, and what I've argued in greater detail in the book that Ryan mentioned, I don't, I don't think it's in your bookstore, but I know it's in your library, so you can check it out if you want to see the full argument at any point, is that grasping the coherence of this paradigm that Paul presents here will pay dividends, our theology and for our ministries. And to make this argument, I want to do a little bit of exegetical and biblical theological work. I want to consider with you very briefly how complex metaphors actually work, and I want to begin to tease out some of the important implications of this passage in God's Word for our ministries. But before we look at the text of 1 Corinthians, let me say just very briefly why I'm using the term paradigm to try and capture all of this. Although the Greek word for for paradigm, paradigma, doesn't appear in our passage, I think it is the ideal word for capturing what we see here. In our modern context, what is a paradigm? A paradigm is a typical pattern or example of something. And the same was true in a Greco-Roman context. On your handout, you'll see there at the top of page one that John Chrysostom, an ancient and very good interpreter of the Apostle Paul, saw that by calling himself a wise master builder, a sophos architecton in 1 Corinthians 3.10, the apostle was offering the Corinthians an example, and he calls it a typos, a a type. That is, Paul was holding out his own ministry uh, as a template or a pattern by which he aimed to correct the Corinthians' politeia, as Chrysostom puts it. A politeia is a constitution, but it's also a constituted way of living together in community. And one of the key problems that had arisen after Paul left Corinth was that a worldly colonial pattern of politeia had crept in to the to the church, to the ecclesial politeia, and there was confusion about which politeia should we be living in here. How should we do things in the church? Should we do them like the world does them outside, or is there a different way that God has ordained for the church to work? And as Chrysostom puts it in another place, and you have this on your handout as well, Paul is a skilled master builder, not of a worldly colony, but of the heavenly commonwealth, the heavenly politeia. There's a further resonance to paradigma, paradigm, and its near synonym, tupos, which Chrysostom uses, in the first century context. Both of those terms have a resonance that goes beyond mere example or pattern. In context to do particularly with public works construction, paradigmata, or paradigms, could refer to architectural drawings. They could even refer to written specifications for how to build something like a temple, or be scale models, physical plastic models, of parts of that temple. Paradigm was used to describe each of those. So linguistically and conceptually, we can see that both paradigma and typos Function in this way, even in the Bible, for us at various points. You've got Exodus chapter 25, verse 9 and verse 40 on your handout. You know this text, you know there what happens as Moses ascends Mount Sinai and he enters into the glory cloud, and what does he see there? He's shown a heavenly architectural paradigm for the construction of the earthly tabernacle. And both of those words are used in the Greek translation of that text in Exodus 25. So I think paradigm is just the right word for capturing what Paul is about in our passage in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. The pattern of the building site and the building process that Paul presents in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 4, 5 might even, might even provoke us a kind of paradigm shift of sorts in our own thinking about what ministry is, just as it would have done for those many who were enmeshed in a worldly mindset at first century Corinth. So in order to make this case, I am proposing to answer a series of further questions. You see the headings as you look down the page on the handout there. Uh, section two on the handout asks the question, why is 3 5 to 4 5 the rhetorical unit? Some of you might be wondering, why 3 5 to 4 5? Why not just chapter 3? Or why not 3 5 to 17, where we maybe see some of this most clearly? Why do I think 3 5 to 4 5 most naturally forms the boundaries of this passage? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, David Cuck, a New Testament scholar, argued in 1992, in my view, decisively, that we should view 3 5 to 4 5 as a discrete unit and a unified unit on rhetorical and exegetical grounds. And he noted five subunits, and you can see those laid out on your handout. In three five to nine, we're introduced to the ideas of planting, watering, and growing the garden building of the church. Then in three ten to fifteen, Paul focuses on the gracious gospel of Christ as a foundation for all future ministry or building work. And here ministry is compared to building work according to specifications, and ministers must be ready to face an eschatological evaluation for their work. Then in verses 16 to 17, Paul famously insists that ministers, and others too, must view must view the garden building as a holy temple indwelt by the glory spirit. In verses 18 to 23, Ministers and others are prompted to a critical self-evaluation in light of worldly wisdom and boasting and the way that God punctures those pretensions. And then in four, one to five, uh, which rounds out the larger passage, Paul rejects the judgment of some worldly Corinthians, even as he embraces instead the divine eschatological evaluation and implies that we should, too. So Cuck rightly noted that Paul's climactic applications in these five units come uh, at the double high point of 318 to 23 and then 4, 1 to 5. Just before, in Cuck's words, Paul takes a rhetorical breath in verse 6 of chapter 4 and tips his rhetorical hand explicitly. I believe this is just right, and it's confirmed by the discourse signals given in the text we'll look at momentarily. Cuck also points out that in 3 5 to 4 5, this is the first place in 1 Corinthians where we really have integrated and, and begin to have driven home Paul's argument concerning wisdom, factions, and judgment or evaluation. Cuck writes, Paul, in 3.5-4.5, appeals to the promised judgment of God as a means of discouraging individual jockeying for position on the basis of worldly wisdom. One of the reasons I find Cuck's arguments so persuasive is that I think they reflect what we would call the the explicit discourse markers in the text. You've also got these at the bottom of page 1 on your handout. Having discussed in chapter 2 of the letter... Spiritual wisdom, worldly versus spiritual wisdom and evaluation. Paul returns in chapter 3 to the presenting issue of factions that had developed in support of himself on the part of some and others supporting the Alexandrian orator Apollos. Then in 3, verse 5, he launches into a paradigm shift with a rhetorical question and the inferential particle un. So then, Apollos is what? Paul is what? This marks the beginning of a new section to do with the proper evaluation of ministers like Paul and Apollos. The internal subunits of the passage are marked by thematic steps forward as in verses 10 to 15, by further rhetorical questions as in 3:16 and 17, or by controlling imperatives as in 3:18 and 4:1. And that the passage comes to a coherent close before the argument moves on, is evident from both the result clause of 4-5, you see the hoste there, and the rhetorical exclamation point in Cuck's words of chapter 4, verse 6. Now verse 6 is a really tricky verse. It's generated an amazing amount of uh, interpretations in the history of scholarship, and I'm not going to go into all the detail here. You can read the excursus in the book if you like. Uh, But suffice it to say that these things there at the beginning of verse 6, the tauta, you see that just there, these things refers to the elements of the entire paradigm that's just been laid out in 3.5 to 4.5. And the verb metaschematizo here, go to the next one, you can see it uh, in yellow print there. Is most naturally translated in its usual sense, which means to change the form of something. And as Morna Hooker argued several decades ago, if metaschematizo is understood in its usual sense, then it is the tauta that are changed. And they are changed is emafton ke apolon, with reference to myself and Apollos. Now you can see my gloss here at the bottom of the screen and also on your handout. I think Paul is making a really lovely architectural pun or wordplay here. Here's how I would translate it. Now, these things, brothers, I have remodeled with regard to myself and Apollos because of you. That is, because of your criticisms of me and your wrong evaluation of our ministries. So, according to chapter 4, verse 6, the, the purpose of that entire preceding rhetorical unit in 3 5 to 4 5 is what? It's to undercut boasting. And to reconfigure a proper evaluation of ministry in relation to Paul's apostolic gospel. And it's also intended to recalibrate the relationship of ministers within the ultimate purpose of the church as a holy temple. And if 3 5 to 4 5 is in fact the rhetorical unit and is viewed as a whole in this way from the vantage point of chapter 4 verse 6, then I asked myself, well, why would it not also be a unified metaphorical unit? Well, you can see as you go over the page uh, that there are the names of a few scholars there who gave me pause. Not him, sorry, we'll go back. <clears throat> uh, on page two, is a few scholars who gave me pause in thinking that this from 3 5 to 4 5 might be an entirely unified metaphor, a complex metaphor. That's not the way that everyone has viewed it. So Gordon Fee, in his very fine nineteen eighty eight commentary on First Corinthians, says, for example, that Paul is shifting images as from three five onwards he talks about planting, then watering, then building. That these are these are individual atomistic images that, that planting has to do with farming. And there were some Corinthians who lived outside the town who knew about farming. And then watering, well, it might be baptism, it might be something to do with farming, but then building, buildings inside the city, that's construction. And Sophie moves one by one across these different metaphors. And he's followed by someone like David Williams, who in 2003 wrote a book on Paul's metaphors. And he, too, seems to treat each image one by one, proposing so-called backgrounds to each single image or source domains, that is, areas in the world, the lived world, where these ideas have come from. This kind of treatment of Paul's metaphors, as if he's using them ornamentally or casually shifting from one to another, is still the standard way that they are treated in most commentaries. But there is a better way. There's a better way in light of recent research over the last several decades into metaphor theory. And that better way, I think, unlocks for us the inner logic of what is going on in Paul's paradigm just here. Before we look a little bit more at metaphor, there's one more disagreement that that pertains uh, with reference to our passage. And it, too, is related to these source domains. Where is Paul getting, in this case, the image of a temple from? Well, John Lancey argued in 1997 that it's coming from the Corinthian, Greco-Roman setting of Roman temple building, that there's a building boom that we can demonstrate that's going on in the 40s and 50s in first century Corinth. We see this in the archaeological record. Some of those you can see if you visit Corinth today. And Lancy says that, together with the way that the, the, the rhetoricians are using the topos, or the, the topic of temple, is where Paul's drawing this from. Okay, that's compelling in a way. But then Greg Beale, in 2004, in his book about the church uh, and its mission in relation to the biblical theology of the temple, says, no, we don't have to look to the Corinthian context. We just have to look to our Old Testament, biblical theological context, where we know that the church, the covenant community, is pictured right through the Old Testament as a temple. In fact, Beale says, maybe, maybe people like Fee don't quite have it right because Garden and building do come together in that Old Testament uh, biblical theology of a temple. So which is it? Which is it? Is it the the Greco-Roman context or is it the Old Testament context? And I ask myself, is that a false dilemma? Do we have to choose or perhaps can metaphor theory help us here? Uh, once again, just before getting to metaphor three, this man also helped me, uh, as he has helped me many times over the years. And as I had ringing in my ears uh, Meredith Klein's language of architectonic, one of his favorite words. He likes, to, he, like, he likes to poetically invent words, doesn't he, as he writes, and I love it. And ever since I read Structure of Biblical Authority for the first time, uh, I had architectonic ringing in my ears, And maybe if I had known about Dr. Stell's dreams before yesterday, I could have photoshopped a little tractor right there under um, Professor Klein, but I didn't know that in time. Architectonic was ringing in my ears. What does Klein mean by architectonic? Well, he means that the divine covenantal word in both testaments is not only inherently canonical, but it's also the means by which God powerfully builds up a living temple house which is the covenant community. And here in our passage, what do we have? We've got an apostolic architect referring repeatedly to his foundation word that structures a temple community indwelt by the glory spirit. So Klein's architectonics led me to wonder further, how might Paul, right here, writing as a minister of the new covenant, which he says explicitly in his second letter to Corinth in chapter 3, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians, how would Paul choose to speak in a biblical, theological, and Roman Corinthian idiom that communicates to his people and articulates the design for a New Covenant ministry in relation to New Covenant community. And I found an answer that began to satisfy me in the works of two other scholars, one of Old Testament and one of metaphor theory. Here's the Old Testament scholar who helped me most. Uh, Job Jindo, in his book, Biblical Metaphor Reconsidered, subtitled A Cognitive Approach to Poetic Prophecy in Jeremiah 1-24, to argues that Jeremiah repeatedly uses the language of planting and building together, not simply as two distinct juxtaposed images. And Jindo, Jindo criticizes those who want to approach the terms atomistically. He says in the commission, in chapter 1, verse 10, when Jeremiah is commissioned, And we get the language, the final verbs of build and plant. These are are not merely the last in a series of metaphorical verbs. The whole taken together, all of those verbs, represents to us, in light of cognitive linguistic metaphor theory, one unified mode of orientation, he calls it. This This is a way of looking at what it means to be a prophetic emissary, a covenantal emissary. And he says that as Jeremiah unfolds this and repeats this language, which he does, uh, of building and planting, he's reflecting the ancient Near Eastern divine garden paradigm, in which the prophet is Yahweh's covenantal emissary, and the community is the Exodus plantation. And here Jindo picks up on that very important biblical theological text, Exodus 15, 17. I think he's just right. So Jindo provides a more robust biblical theological foundation, I think, for Beale's suggestion that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and following, is not casually shifting images or or changing metaphors. Rather, he seems to be at work constructing one complex cultural metaphor, something new drawing on several known things. Now, the other scholar who helped me is this metaphorologist, and there is such a thing I came to learn as a metaphorologist. Uh, And he's one that Jindo cites repeatedly. His name is Zoltan Kvecicis. He's a Hungarian scholar. And in this book, Metaphor in Culture, Universality and Variation, Kvecicis makes several points which are really helpful, I think, for us in approaching Paul's paradigm in our passage. Kvecicis is building on two important insights in metaphor research. First, metaphors are cognitive. They... We we can we can start to track what they're doing in our brains in modern research. These metaphors Uh, they help us. They contribute structurally to the way we conceptualize reality, even before we sometimes speak about that reality. Second, metaphors are of the body. As we move through space and experience the world, this generates for us metaphors that we use to talk about our experience. And important metaphors can translate across languages and even across cultures. But there are certain things, uh, there are are ways that we can track culturally specific shapes that metaphors seem to take. So on your handout there, you've got uh, Kvechisi's vote for what is the most central American metaphor. The central metaphor structuring American life. See if you agree with him. He thinks life is a show or life is a spectacle is the most fundamental way that Americans, we as Americans, tend to think about life. How does this work? Kvecznyi says there's a source domain, in this case show or spectacle, that is more physical. You have a stage, a drama, you can see this taking place. And the target towards which it's directed, life in this instance, is much more abstract. Furthermore, he says, we've got an experiential basis for this this metaphor and he traces the history of drama shows in early 20th century american life on through to entertainment on the screens in our in our modern age and he notes he notes that this due to this embodied aspect of metaphor there are actually neural structures in our brains which fire in certain ways when metaphors to do with life as a show or a spectacle are used when we speak those or when we hear those you can track that in in our brains uh, so, life is a spectacle, is his proposal for the central metaphor. Now, hang on here, because this is all going to come back to help us with Paul's paradigm, I promise. Hang in there for just a minute. Finally, he says, when, when domains begin to map onto one another, you can have more than one source domain mapping onto a target domain. It doesn't just have to be one, according to metaphor theory. That's going to be really helpful for us in 1 Corinthians 3. And once once those two are blended together what happens is they generate for us new entailments, new implications, and even a new way of conceptualizing the world, according to the metaphor uh, theorists. So what does all this abstraction mean when we bring it back to Paul's text? It means that, I think here, in First Corinthians 3, we're witnessing Paul generate, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a new, complex cultural metaphor to serve his purposes in Corinth. He takes two source domains, Old Testament temple garden, Greco-Roman public instruction, and he melds them together. And from the resulting combination, he's able to make the points he wants to make. From the Old Testament metaphor, he draws on the emphases of divine agency and power at work through a commissioned emissary and on the covenant community as a garden temple assembly. From the Greco-Roman temple building uh, domain, he draws on uh, the, the experiential and embodied basis for those in Corinth who have seen this kind of construction and they know how people relate to one another. Architects on the worksite relating to builders and all of those relating to commissioners who fund the project. This is a lived experience for them. And Paul takes those two source domains and he conjoins them in order to challenge the assumptions about life in the assembled community in Corinth. And what does he end up with? Well, it's there on your handout again. It's this metaphor. Church or new covenant community is a temple-building project. And it's the latter part of that formulation that I want you to note. Temple-building project. That's where we begin to glimpse some of the entailments that the, the metaphor theorists talk about, the potential for new insights or for a paradigm shift. Reconceptualizing gospel ministry in relation to covenant community. So let's begin to tease out some of those effects as we move to finish of Paul's adaptive paradigm. Let me just restate this in a slightly different way. You'll see under section 4 on the handout that I'm suggesting that the Corinthian Greco-Roman setting of public works construction is not really cultural background as we're taught to think of it here. Instead, it's a kind of foreground that Paul aims for And the Old Testament garden temple theme is the proper background, and the two are brought together in the text and woven into something new with communicative power. I've said that the metaphor central to Paul's paradigm is essentially new covenant community is a temple-building project, and seeing it as a temple-building project allows us to pay attention to other related dynamics involved in public works projects, such as temple-building. A German scholar by the name of Egger noted a century ago that there's all kinds of overlap, all kinds of overlap in our text of terminology that you find in 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 and the temple-building inscriptions, the Greek inscriptions that remain. But because he was not a New Testament scholar, it was really only Adolf Deismann who picked up on this and then it disappeared in an, in an eddy off to the side. Until in 1988, another scholar named Jay Shannor realized, yes, there's a lot of lexical terminological overlap, but Shannor just left it there. He said there are a lot of words in common. That's interesting. And he left it. Well, I think it's more interesting than that because it's not just the words that overlap, it's actually the dynamics of how the people on the building site interact that Paul is going to draw on in this passage. So, Egger and Shannor both are very helpful to us as we begin to think about what Paul's paradigm wants to direct us to. It implies that the politics, and I use politics here, because I think what we're looking at is a pattern that goes beyond just law or just contract, that embraces these social and communal dynamics implicated in temple construction projects. It implies that the politics of building in the Corinthian colony are not necessarily the best model for the distinctive politics of the Corinthian Church or assembly, the ecclesia. And the greatest payoff comes when we think about how this helps us to reconceptualize accountability, authority, and acclamation in the church. Let's take them in that order. There are three moments in the text that I want to draw your attention to, each of which concerns accountability and evaluation in Paul's paradigm. The first is Paul's foundation, the themelios, repeated three times, 310, 311, 312, In verse 10, Paul laid the foundation in his unique apostolic role as architect or master builder. Verse 11, Paul's foundation is the only foundation. No other foundation can be laid. This is because the foundation is Jesus Christ. And then in verses 12 and 13, all other builders must build squarely upon Paul's Paul's Christological foundation for their work to be lasting and for it to be approved. But we have to remember that Paul's themelios not only has a name, Jesus Christ. It has robust gospel and christological content that's already been supplied in the opening chapters of First Corinthians. In chapter one, verse six, Paul spoke about his testimony concerning Christ that he had proclaimed in, uh, to when he was there among the Corinthians. It was a gospel testimony that, according to chapter one, verses seven and eight announced to them their great gospel privileges in Christ, such that they would have every grace they needed to be approved blameless on the last day. And then verse 9 of chapter 1 reminded them that these gospel privileges in Christ are rooted where? In God's faithfulness and in God's calling. This testimony is part of what Paul has in mind, I would suggest, when he comes to the word foundation in chapter 3, verse 10. And following. But there's more. The word of the cross that Paul talks about in chapter 1, verse 18, is wonderfully unpacked for us, isn't it? At the very end of chapter 1, in verse 30, where Jesus Christ is revealed to be for us wisdom from God, that is, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is where Calvin goes, by the way, when he's talking about chapter 3, verse 10. He goes back to 130 and he says, This is what the Themelios is talking about. Here's Calvin. Let us observe then in what way the church is rightly built upon Christ it is when he alone is set forth for righteousness redemption sanctification wisdom satisfaction and cleansing in short for life and glory or if you would have it stated more briefly when christ is proclaimed in such a manner that his office and influence are understood in accordance with what we found stated at the close of the first chapter that is chapter 1 verse 30 if Calvin goes on, Christ, on the other hand, is only to some degree acknowledged and is called a redeemer only in name, while in the meantime, recourse is had to some other quarter for righteousness, sanctification, and salvation that he is driven off the foundation and spurious stones are substituted in his place. And Calvin concludes, For as Christ is the foundation of the Church, because he is the only source of salvation and eternal life, if he is not acknowledged as such, He is no longer regarded as the foundation. And this point that there is robust doctrinal content to Paul's Christ themelios in chapter 3 was also rightly picked up on by the Reformed scholastics and some of the Reformed confessions. In volume 2, for example, of Richard Muller's post-Reformation Reformed Dogmatics, he notes that many, in treating 1 Corinthians 3.11 and the themelios, which is Christ, speak of a fundamentum, a foundation that embraced Christ as mediator and as the object of faith. And this fundamentum was closely related to the hermeneutical notion of Christ as the scopus, the goal or the integrating target of Scripture. And taken together, these two notions of fundamentum and scopus highlight, I think for us, suggest what the fulsome Christological content resident in Paul's foundation language is in this paradigm. The Belgic Confession in Article 7 refers explicitly to 1 Corinthians 3.11 in the Scripture proofs. There, in speaking of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be the only rule of faith, the Belgic concludes emphatically, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever doth not agree with this infallible rule, citing 1 Corinthians 3.11. See, Paul's foundation that he speaks of here, it's a foundation, but it's at the same time a detailed architectural blueprint. It's a a canon, a rule. Canon, you know, just means rule in Greek. It's a rule against which to measure and evaluate further building work. And the clear conclusion for Paul is that for so-called, a so-called gospel minister to veer off of this foundation, to veer away from this content, or to disregard this blueprint, renders him liable to penalty. So chapter 3, verse 10, right at the end, do you see it there? If you got your text open? Now let each one take care how he builds. This is a sobering imperative. Indeed, I think for those of you training for gospel ministry, and we would do well in light of Paul's paradigm to carry with us into the pulpit and into every pastoral encounter the exhortation of Thomas Goodwin who said faith must pitch itself upon our mediator as a cornerstone laid by God as a sure foundation the imperative of 310 gains even more urgency if it's possible for us as we realize what kind of day it is that Paul's talking about in 313 to 15 It's the day when the Lord will judge, and each one will receive his approval from God. The same kind of thing in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. In the logic of of the building project paradigm, there was a day appointed on which the one who commissioned the construction work came to the building site to render approval or to pronounce disapproval of the project. And it was at that point... And only at that point that payment was made and that legal liability shifted from the construction workers to the commissioner. This day, you've got it on your handout there, was known as the Ad Probatio Operis, the day of the approval of the work. There's a well-known inscription from Corinth, this Babius inscription, if you can see it, it's a bit washed out there on the screen. And that gives us a glimpse of this kind of approval in action in Corinth, exactly in our period. Babius was a colonial magistrate. He was wealthy enough to build lots of things around Corinth, lots of structures, fountains, little temples. And one of those monuments uh, that he commissioned records his approval in this associated inscription. On the slide, you can see perhaps there that final P surrounded by these little chisel marks called interpuncts. And the whole of the restored inscription, if we could see it together, reads this. Gnaeus Babius Philenus, who was aedile, that's a magist- magistracy associated with uh, oversight of the marketplace. He was also pontifex, the colonial priest. From his own funds, saw to the building, and in his capacity as duovir, another magistracy that's held normally for one year, he approved it, probawit. That's what the P stands for. The day of approval is right there in the P. And for Paul, in 3.13 to 15 and in 4.1 to 5, it's the day of divine evaluation and approval that constitutes the eschatological horizon of accountability for all gospel ministers. And as we look to that day, what should it do? It should engender in us great care, humility, self-examination, Because we are seeking to build God's holy temple on the foundation of Christ, the mediator. Paul's paradigm then pushes us to consider carefully accountability and ministry. It also prompts us to think about authority and status in ministry. And here we have to say that we're faced with the reality that gospel ministry for the minister is not particularly glorious. Look for a moment at the text of 3, 5 to 17. I don't... I don't imagine you're going to be able to read all of that. I just want you to see the block of text. Because now what I'll do is I'm going to highlight, I'm not sure if you can see the colors there, all the different terms, the nouns and the verbs that relate to Paul's titles and description of what ministry is like. It's just shot through. It's shot through with terminology of ministry. Ministry is ministry paul insists it 's not magistracy that is it 's not rule it 's not exalted. Ministers are diaconi in verse three in verse five of chapter three. Ministry is service the minister 's authority is derivative and representative he is under oversight and he 's accountable for the quality and the manner of his service accountable to the one who commissioned him. The terms in four one do the same work for us there we see the assistant, the one who uh, is an assistant to an implied superior, and the economos, the the steward or the household manager, holding responsibilities in trust. These terms also bear this reality out. It's an authority in ministry that's accountable. It's to be used for service. Furthermore, ministry in this paradigm is not leadership. It's labor. Paul uses the terms kopos, and ergon right throughout. Others have noted that Paul studiously avoids, he never goes near the the Greek terms for leadership that he could have drawn on. He avoids them, choosing instead to use lower status designations to humble those who are engaged in ministry. And I hope it comes as no surprise to you to note that Paul's language for building work in the logic of the paradigm implies this is really, really hard work that you're about to be engaged in. Now, many of you have already tasted this in churches where you have served before coming to seminary, in churches where you are serving now, and you will know it even more so as you go on from this place. Ministry can be exhausting. It's not easy. It's often not appreciated. It's not always fulfilling. Gospel ministry is hard work, but Paul's paradigm helps us to expect that. Some of these dynamics are wonderfully visible in this relief from the Roman city of Terracina. Uh, if you can see here, you've got a magistrate seated on his special little chair there. And just behind him, hidden off to the side, we read this from right to left, by the way, Hebrew style. And just behind him, you've got the architect. And in his hand, he's holding, he's holding a little roll, a scroll. That's either a drawing, a blueprint, or it's, it's the text specifying how to build this structure. And then we follow the architect who's right here, we follow him across this relief. Now he's down on the building site working with this freedman. He used to be a slave. Now he's been set free, but he's still a laborer. He's working hard. He's using his chisel to cut stones. This guy's lifting heavy stones with good Roman technology. And so it goes across the relief. This architect moving down among his men, engaged in the work, holding the entire time the blueprint as he goes. He goes. That's a very helpful image, I think, for us as we think about Paul's paradigm just here. Where are you in this image, by the way? Where are you in this relief? You're not the magistrate who commissioned the work. You're not the architect because you're not an apostle. You're the worker. We we are those we're, we're the grunt workers doing the heavy lifting. That's what ministry is. And in light of all of this, Paul also loves to speak in this section. Of co workers, synergy in 3 9, co workers in the gospel. This teaches us that ministry is teamwork. It's collaborative. It's not solo. It's not Lone Ranger. It might feel lonely sometimes. It's not celebrity. And it's not meant to be competitive. Now, for those of you heading into ordained gospel ministry, you will be ordained as an elder among other elders, and both in your session. And among your fathers and brothers, when you meet at Presbytery or at classes, you will grow together, you will pray together, you will struggle together, and you're going to work shoulder to shoulder together with other builders whom the Lord has called to work on his building project. Ministry is not competitive. It's meant to be collaborative amongst fellow workers. So consider with me how Paul's paradigm sits alongside other possible paradigms. What if we said, ministry is military leadership? Where does that lead us? I think the likely entailments are that we have a kind of authoritarianism, a very strong hierarchical view of how church works, and it's likely that leadership will tend to be arrogant and will be prone to pull rank or even to intimidate those that we're working with. What if we say, instead, ministry is managerial leadership? Where does that lead us? Well, quite possibly, the entailments are an expectation of increasing worldly status and reward, as well as a competitive approach to get ahead, to succeed, by worldly standards. But what if, instead, we say that ministry is building work, as in Paul's paradigm— then the entailments are at least the following. Our work is constrained and supported by a doctrinal blueprint. We're not to expect high status or glory in worldly terms. We're not, to, we're not out to compete or to get ahead. And we're accountable to the one who commissioned the project. We can expect from him a reward for faithful service or a penalty if we deviate from his design or damage the living stones that comprise his holy temple. Accountability, authority, and finally, acclamation. What do I mean by acclamation? Acclamation is shouts of praise or glory. If gospel ministry is not glorious for the minister, it is glorious when the minister looks to the one who commissions the work and who supplies everything that's needed for its beautiful completion. In this text, Paul and his paradigm reassures us that God gives us everything we need in ministry. His support for the building project is total and complete. His resources are inexhaustible. He pours them out for us in Christ Jesus. He supplies, equips, and energizes the fellow workers as they work together. God gives us, through Paul in our text, the gospel foundation of Christ, as we've seen in 311. And the gracious character of that foundation renders any human boasting incoherent. Why would a minister ever boast? given where they sit in this paradigm. All glory in the gospel and its effect in building up the church goes not to the minister, but to the commissioner, the benefactor, the one who provides everything that's needed. And in case that wasn't clear yet to us, the crescendo from verse 18 to 23, uh, particularly as it finishes in 21b to 23, drives this home for us. Look there at uh, at verse 21 uh, towards the end. For all things are yours. Listen to this. Listen to this rhetorical wave build and crest here from verse 22 on. Ite Pavlos, ite Apollos, ite Kifas, ite Kosmos, ite Zoï, ite Thanatos, ite Enestota, ite Melonta, panta imon. I miss the Christou, Christos the Theou. Can you hear how Paul brings that to a glorious rhetorical climax? All things are yours. Apostles, ministers, and supremely, Christ. All are given by God, the commissioner. This is an overflowing gift poured out. There's no budget limit on this particular building project because the benefactor has unlimited resources. And finally, in verses 6 to 9, we also hear some rhythmic elements that are worth our attention. I want to just point you to verses 6 and 7, where there are three verbs there. You can see them. Planted, watered, grew. And those three verbs, planted, watered, grew, morph in the next verse into nominative, substantive participles that function like titles, the planter, the grower, the, the, the planter, the waterer, the grower. The rhythm and repetition here suggests that Paul is offering the Corinthians a kind of acclamatory script. He's telling them how you go about praising the one who deserves the praise. How do you give glory to the one who deserves the glory? This is how, Paul says, you use this title and you, and you use it in praise of God. And this is exactly how acclamations worked. In the first century world, you gathered a crowd to acclaim the patron who had beautified the city space by building a temple or building some other glorious public building. You gathered a crowd and you chanted these kinds of words. In fact, you chanted this particular word, words that derive from axano here, our verb, the one that means to grow or to give the increase. This was a title for civic benefactors, and they were acclaimed by shouts. Related to this title, and I think that leads us to think here in chapter 3, verse 7, that this little phrase right at the end, x- al- o theos, bears many of the hallmarks of an acclamatory formula granting, granting public honor to a patron who has beautified his city with a monumental building. This, then, is where the glory of gospel ministry comes to rest. And it's the key realization that reorients us. So that we can properly evaluate what is gospel ministry all about in relation to the church. Paul's principle here is simple. It's rhythmic. It's memorable. We might even say it preaches really well. Only the one who gives the growth gets the glory. Only the one who gives the growth gets the glory. I've covered a lot of ground here and I promise I'm about to finish. Thank you for being patient with paradigms, with discourse markers, with metaphor, and more. And as we conclude, I just want to draw back one last time uh, for a final consideration in the light of the glory that we're glimpsing in this passage. The main point uh, of 1 Corinthians is not, as many would argue, unity. It's not even purity or holiness. Those are important. But the main point is the glory that unity and purity in the church serve. The peace and the purity of Christ's church give him the glory that he deserves. And that's the main point here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some of you may recognize this image. Uh, This is the coffered inner dome of the Pantheon at Rome. The Pantheon was a temple to Roman gods, constructed in the late first and early first, uh, late first century BC, early first AD, uh, and it was commissioned and funded by one Marcus Agrippa, a very wealthy man who was friends with Octavian Augustus. Now, this is the front facade, and on the facade, you can see there in the architrave, just above the columns and below the triangular pediment, an inscription. In punctuated epigraphical laughter, this is what it reads. Marcus Agrippa, Lucius Filius, the son of Lucius, cos tertium, consul for the third time, fake it. He made it. Do you see that? It's that that last word that gives Agrippa the glory, and it's inscribed there for the ages. Now, if we fly back east to Corinth, this is all that remains. If you go to Corinth now, there are no glorious temples left. It's just blocks of marble, A few scattered and fragmented inscriptions lying around the place. The building boom of the first century is now reduced to rubble and archaeological remains. But the temple construction project begun by the Apostle Paul with the proclamation of the word of the cross, with the foundation of Christ the mediator, and by the indwelling presence of the glory spirit, that temple building project still continues to rise all around the world. And it's a project that many of you have signed on to be laborers uh, on that project. It's a daunting and it's a delightful project. It's daunting because it's really hard work and the specifications are strenuous. And maybe if you've just started your first semester, you're feeling some of that strain already. It's daunting, but it's delightful. It's delightful because the God of all grace supplies our every need in the work. And what will we behold? What will we behold inscribed on the last day, on the architrave of that holy temple? It will be this inscription, God the Father, by the Son, by his Spirit, made it. And that, brothers and sisters, is Paul's paradigm for building up the church. Thank you.